I was straightening up the garage. That's an understatement. With my daughter, Eva, on Saturday, I had been away for eight days with our deacon candidates retreat in Malvern and then at our priests conference all week in Hunt Valley. And while I was in these very high-powered, demanding situations, my garage was crying out to me, come home, come home. And so I, I was eager. I had to get into the garage on Saturday. So Eva and I are packing boxes and straightening out. And, and while I'm doing this, I'm thinking about the scriptures for this weekend and these lessons that we were going to be reading together, these three lessons that are so rich. There's so much here for us to consider. We can only take a little line uh, from one and uh, from, from the other. And the one that jumped out at me from our first reading today, I pleaded and the spirit of wisdom came to me. Our priest conference was around, in very large part, the horrendous scandal and circumstance that we are currently in as church and especially as clergy. And I was thinking Saturday in the garage about the necessity, the absolute essential wisdom that we need in this time. This conflict, this controversy, this scandal that is overwhelming us. We need wisdom. Now, when I say wisdom, what comes to your mind? What is wisdom? When I use that term, what does wisdom mean to you? Someone suggests something. Prime the pump. Start, start something here. What is it? Wise. Someone is wise. Very nice. What else? Guidance. So wisdom is a form of guidance. Knowledge. Knowing. What else? What is it? Discernment. To discern. What else? What else is wisdom? Hmm? Insight. So seeing beyond the surface. What else? There's more to wisdom. One more. What is it? Truth. All right, truth. 
believing, something you can trust in. Wisdom. Okay. So wisdom, this uh, book of wisdom, which we've read from so aptly titled, comes from the Greek. And the Greek is, who knows what the Greek for wisdom is? Sophia. Sophia. Always in the feminine. Always woman. Sophia. And Sophia in Greek, the Koine Greek of the New Testament, there's about four different Greeks, and the Koine Greek is the Greek of the New Testament. And uh, that is a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word chokmah. Chokmah. Say that with me. Chokmah. No, again. Chokmah. It's down here, okay? So chokmah is the practical application of knowledge. So it is not so much what we know, but what we do with what we know. How we apply knowledge. And in the first reading, we plead for wisdom, and it is given to us. And that's where we're at as church, pleading to know what to do. What do we do with what we know? But if we ask, what do I do with what I know, then we have to ask, what do I know? What is it that I know? Well, Let's first look at the second reading. The second reading comes from the book of Hebrews. Now, some will say it's a letter, and some will say that it's a homily. I want you to read the book of Hebrews in one setting and imagine a homily that long. It was a different time. People had different attention spans in ancient times. But anyway... There's just that one verse that I want to focus on. No creature is concealed from him, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. So, we are four generations of Catholics in my family. But 15 years ago, none of us were Catholic. And uh, we had our first trip to Rome, my wife Becky and I, and our eight kids went to Rome. And I know what you're thinking. How did you do that? <laughs> Ten of you? The two of you and your, all your eight kids went to Rome. The story is Meshuggah. So it started with me being exposed to the worst case of poison ivy, poison oak ever. This is how my trip to Rome began. So I was in the church in Baltimore, and we were clearing out rubbish and uh, debris from the woods behind the church, and I had been in the woods for two hours. It was pouring rain, and I'm pulling stuff out, and one of the wiser men in the congregation came down and said, 
Pastor, what are you doing here? This is all poison oak and poison ivy. And I had been in it for two hours. Sure enough, next morning I wake up and the lesions are starting on my forehead, side of my face, and I was getting ready to leave to go to be the chaplain of a massive youth convention, conference. And I could just imagine myself trying to minister to uh, 10,000 young people with big oozing blisters on my face. You know, I mean, that just wouldn't work. You know what I mean? So I'm on the internet. I call the doctor. He says, I can give you a steroid, but this isn't going to work for quite a few days. You know, there's some products you can use. And I found a product called Xanfel on the uh, over-the-counter, so I went and got my prescription at the drugstore, and then I got the Xanfel, and I put the Xanfel on the next day, nothing. Everything was gone. And uh, I was amazed. I did something I had never done in my life. I called the 800 number on the box, and the phone is ringing, 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 ringing. Finally, a deadpan voice answers. This is Bill Yarborough, Xanfel Laboratories, Peoria, Illinois. It wasn't like a $9 an hour first, you know, front-end person. It was kind of strange. And I said, oh, I said, my name is Paul Shank from Baltimore, and I, I, I used your product, and it was amazing. It worked immediately, and so on and so on. He said, when, when were you exposed? Yeah, how much did you use? You go according to the directions, you know. And, and then he says, give me 10 minutes, I'll call you back. Click. That was weird. It was off the box. Ten minutes later, the phone rings. This is Bill, Bill Yarborough from Zanfeld Laboratories. Where have you been? And I said, excuse me? He said, where have you been? He said, I've been watching, looking for you for years. I said, excuse me, do, do we know one another? He said, no, you don't know me, but I know you. He said, you did all the pro-life work up in western New York, Right. And he said, I followed you through the newspapers, and he said, look at your mail. Did you keep your mail? He said, I sent you some letters, and I sent you some money when you were in jail. He said, uh, but then, he said, then all of a sudden you dropped off the, off the map. I didn't find you anymore. I couldn't, uh, what happened to you? Where did you go? This is off an 800 number on a box that I bought at the pharmacy. <laughs> then he tells me the story. He tells me that he had the same situation I had. He wasn't a chemist. He wasn't a... Uh, he wasn't a, a doctor, and, uh, but he, he got exposed. He got this terrible uh, poison ivy, uh, and, and he was just in straits, and he was crying out to God for help. And he said in a dream, the Lord showed him what to put together, these chemicals to put together and put on his face. And he said, it worked. I took it to my doctor. My, what's the skin doctor called? I always forget. Dermatologist. And he brought it to the dermatologist. The dermatologist said, do you mind if I show this to some of my colleagues? They raised $5.5 million and they opened Zanfell Laboratories in Peoria, Illinois, and it became the fastest, best-selling, over-the-counter treatment for... You think I'm, I'm with the company, don't you? <laughs> but I'm just telling you the story. And, uh, and, uh, and he, he winds up becoming the you know, a, a, a poison ivy, poison oak maven, and, and a millionaire. And he said he was asking God, what should I do with everything that I've, I've earned here? Uh, I've gotten, and, and God said to him, one of the things you're to do is to defend and protect and advance life, pretend, defending uh, preborn children. And that's how he wound up getting on to me. And then he tells me a story. He was raised a Mormon, uh, but he got away from God. He became a street kid because his parents uh, separated, and then he didn't have a home. And he was on the streets. 
And uh, at, when he became an adult, he, start, he watched a program on EWTN, the Catholic Channel, and uh, he, was, he called, and they sent him to a priest in Chicago, and he never became a Catholic, but he wanted to support and uh, advance uh, pro-life and Catholic concerns. And he said to me, if you're going to become a Catholic, he said, then you've got to go to Rome. I'm going to take you to Rome. So he took us to Rome, my whole family, my wife and I, and our eight kids. We went first class. That's how I got to Rome. So, so we're in Rome, and we're standing in line to get into the Sistine Chapel. And my daughter, Eva, who was helping me with the garage on Saturday, she was just between two and three years old, and she was on my shoulder and fell asleep, and I was in line for almost two hours with her asleep on my shoulder. And we get up to the door, and they go, no, 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 closed. <laughs> and I'd been standing in line. I, my face must have fallen. I still remember the pain <laughs> of my daughter on my shoulder. And... Something must have, you know, just, it, it just called for pity. And, and he stopped for a moment, and he looked, the, 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 the line of people dispersed, and he said, come, come, come here, come here. And he brought us over, and he opened the door, and he let us in by ourselves. We had our own personal family tour of the Sistine Chapel, just by ourselves. And so we walked through, and we're looking, and looking at the... Um, the work by Michelangelo, and Michelangelo painted the figures in heaven and uh, purgatory and hell, uh, and all the figures were in the nude. They were all nude figures. And uh, there was a high official at that time in the papal household uh, named Biagio Martinelli, and he was the pope, he was master of ceremonies for four popes. And uh, he was scandalized by these nude figures that Michelangelo was painting, and he wanted them all covered up. He wanted them either uh, painted out or at least clothed. And he went to the Pope, Pope Adrian, he went to the Pope, and uh, he insisted that these figures be removed. And the story, the lore is that Pope Adrian said, well, my jurisdiction doesn't extend to hell, so they'll have to stay. And... uh, (laughs) But uh, Biagio was, was just so, uh, took such umbrage uh, for this, this scandalous insult of these nude figures in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and he, he kept working against Michelangelo. He wanted Michelangelo dismissed. And so you know what Michelangelo did? Do you know this? He painted Biagio into hell. <laughs> he, painted him, he painted him in hell wearing donkey ears. <laughs> It's still in the Sistine Chapel today, and, uh, and uh, his nudity is covered up by a snake coiling him. So uh, you can see, you know, don't, don't tick off an artist. So, um, but why do you think Michelangelo painted those figures in the nude? Uh, I started here. I'll, I'll come over here. Why, why, why do you think those figures were naked, were in the nude? Who's going to suggest? Why might Michelangelo, hmm? Pure, all right, being pure, there's, there's something, yep. Okay, homily's finished. Thank you. 
So say it again. No one is hidden from God. Michelangelo defended his nude figures saying that nothing can be disguised before God. God knows every one of us. And nothing, what does clothing do? When we put on clothing, what does it do to our bodies? What, what is it? It covers up. What those figures in the Sistine Chapel tell us, according to Michelangelo, is that there are no cover-ups. There is no cover-up before God. Let's read it again in the book of Hebrews. In the second reading, everything, oh, no creature is concealed. Everything is naked and exposed. There are no cover-ups with God. Everything is eventually made known. Let's finish with just a phrase from the gospel this morning. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. Wherever there are human structures, wherever human beings are engaged, there will be a susceptibility. There will be a susceptibility to corruption. Corruptibility. It's part of our nature. We're, We're prone to defending and protecting ourselves and our interests, right? And so wherever human beings are, there's going to be a susceptibility to corruption or a corruptibility. Now this gets back to our question, if wisdom is the practical application of knowledge, then what is it that we know? Well, there's a scripture in the book of Proverbs that says that the knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. The first thing we know is that God will not disappoint us. Where God is, there is ultimate goodness. And so we begin with that knowledge. Our trust is in God and not in structures that are under the uh, guidance of human beings. And the church begins with the knowledge of God, knowing that God is ultimate goodness. And so the church must begin with this knowledge. And this knowledge comes to us from Revelation, what's given to us in Scripture in the teaching of the church. And where, where is the church? This is not the church. This is a pew. This is not the church. This is a building. Will the church please raise her hands? Ah, very good. There's the church. 
And the church begins with the knowledge of God, God's ultimate goodness. And then we ask, what do we do with the knowledge that we have? Knowing that God is ultimately good, we're going to begin to plead and the spirit of wisdom, the practical application of that knowledge, will be given to us. We have that promise in the Scripture. So we can rely on that, that we will be given the wisdom. What do we do in this current circumstance that we find ourselves in? We can plead and we will receive the spirit of wisdom. And that needs to become the church's project. And so as a parish church, we need to begin this project of together asking, what do we do with the knowledge that we have? God is ultimate goodness. Now, how do we bring about that goodness within the life of the church again And as we do, we'll find that the church will receive the wisdom that she needs, the wisdom from Sophia, that marvelous feminine wisdom that comes as a gift of the Spirit of God that needs to be our project. What do we do with what we know?